From Advisory Board, we're bringing you a radio advisory. My name is Rachel Woods. You can call me Ray. There has been no shortage of questions about what the future of our industry could actually look like in a post-COVID world. And executives across health systems are asking, what should I be doing today to change my strategic plan to better match what the industry is going to look like moving forward? Well, on this episode of Radio Advisory, I wanted to bring the lessons from a CEO themselves. So I've brought Mark Harrison onto the podcast. For those of you who don't know Mark, he is the president and CEO of Intermountain Healthcare. He's also a pediatric critical care physician and previously served as the CEO of the Cleveland Clinic Abu Dhabi. Mark, welcome to Radio Advisory. Thank you. Before we dive in, I actually just want to check on you and your health. I know that you've been pretty vocal about your cancer diagnosis in the past, so I hope you don't mind if I just ask how how you're actually doing these days. Well, I'm doing great, and uh, today was actually a big day. Post-treatment, I uh, get monthly labs done, and there's a marker for multiple myeloma called an M-spike. As the cancer gets worse, the M-spike goes up. As it gets better, it goes down. And today I got a lab back that said that it is non-quantifiable at this point. Oh, wow. So I am in complete remission um, and extraordinarily excited about it. And I feel better than I felt in a long time. And training hard and playing hard and psyched about work and life is good. So thank you for asking. That is great to hear. It's been a long journey. And I know that when I was doing some some background research for this, I saw that you're an avid triathlete. I am. And an Ironman seven times, I, I think. Seven times. And uh, I hope to be the first person who's had a bone marrow transplant and um, had CAR T therapy to do an Ironman again. So that's the goal for next next year. It says a lot about who you are as a person, Mark, that that, that you set your sights on on lofty goals. I thought you were going to say that just shows how boring my life is, that I can't think of anything better to do than swim, bike, run, and lift. Well, Mark, I want to jump into a conversation about the future of healthcare. And I think every leader in healthcare has had kind of the same light bulb moment across the last six months, this moment where they realize that as challenging as COVID-19 is, it also provides a real opportunity for us and for our industry to innovate, to break the status quo. So I'm curious, when did that moment actually happen for you? You know, Ray, um, I'd say that for me, COVID has actually validated our strategic plan as much as it changed it. So as I began to realize that overnight, we were shifting from face-to-face care of people to tele, I'll give you an example. We went from having probably dozens of televisits across Intermountain a week to about 9,000 a week. I realized that, boy, that investment we made in distance health and taking care of people where, when, and how they wanted to be cared for was was really spot on. You're saying you went from a dozen telehealth visits to 9,000 a week. That's right. And it's still 9,000 now in August, in September. Yeah, we actually um, 8,500 last week. Wow. So we are absolutely not letting things go back to the way they were. 
we don't think that's the right thing to do. And in fact, I, I see systems that are moving back to face-to-face visits intentionally because of revenue as making a huge mistake. Uh, they're making a mistake for the people they're serving, and they're missing an opportunity to deeply transform their institutions for good. Not only for good, meaning the long run, but for good, meaning the right thing to do for other people. We knew that a digital platform was going to be important. And a couple of years ago, started to invest in the creation of a digital front door. We suspected that AI-powered healthcare was going to be really helpful. We didn't have a ton of use cases for it, but as COVID ramped up and our nurse answer lines got super busy and as our Instacares became overwhelmed and the ED was overwhelmed, we fired up an AI-powered symptom checker for COVID, had about 250,000 uses in the first couple of weeks and saw about a 30% decrease in Instacare and ED usage. So it was sort of validated this approach that it was going to be valuable. It was person light. It was accurate. It was consumer centric. It was small D democratic and that everybody could use it. And it allowed our face-to-face clinicians to do the things that only they could do. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like this was already part of the strategic plan for Intermountain, but perhaps when COVID hit, you saw this as a moment to turn the dial up to 11 and move from tinkering around the edges with some of these digital solutions to saying, we're diving in headfirst. I think that COVID really did catalyze the sort of change that we all knew we could do. Some of us were already on the path. Others, it got them on the path. And in my mind, it actually creates a no excuses environment. We now know what we can do when we need to move. We saw unbelievable innovation and collaboration within and between providers of healthcare to the betterment of society mm-hmm. and, and our neighbors and the people who trust us. Uh, I don't want us to go back. Yeah. I want us to keep pushing hard because we know that healthcare is too expensive and quality is not always what it should be. And boy, we really know that inequities and health disparities are a huge problem. You're talking about a lot of the cracks in the delivery system that I think every leader has woken up to, or maybe they they knew that those were challenges that our industry faced, but perhaps actually addressing them was maybe at the bottom of the to-do list. So I want to talk to you about how healthcare could or perhaps how it should actually be different going forward. And I want to start with care delivery itself, right? You mentioned telehealth as being a an, an example of how we could see care delivery looking really different going forward. How are you thinking about profitably carrying that momentum of telehealth into the future, keeping with 9,000 visits a week? There's a payer answer to that. And I think then there's a delivery answer. And then for some of us, it's the same answer. What we learned through COVID is that insurance companies made tons of money. Some even think maybe unconscionably large sums of money during COVID because their MLR changed dramatically. They didn't Mm -hmm. spend very much on taking care of people because people were staying home. We learned that providers who were stuck in the fee-for-service mentality, they got their lunch eaten. They got crushed. We learned that integrated delivery systems with a high-functioning payer-provider model, we did really pretty well. Our fee-for-service business, which dropped, was hedged by the risk-based business where we keep people well. 
And if anything, it re-emphasized our belief that we need to move even more towards a risk-based, keep people well sort of model. So the answer for me is really simple. You just do the right thing for patients and that ends up paying off. And that's the Mm -hmm. secret I learned is that alignment of incentives is maybe the most important thing we can do. I couldn't agree more because I think that, frankly, there's no one in healthcare who would disagree with the sentiment that we want to do right by patients. I mean, you won't get into this industry if you disagree with that sentiment. I And look, I respect my colleagues immensely. I, I don't know a single person who's devoting their life to this who isn't trying to do the right thing. I think a lot of them are working in the wrong model, Ray. <laughs> well, let's talk about that because I think the the realistic response to that question is, Yes, this is the right thing to do by patients, but how do I get paid for it? What's your response to that question or that pushback? Well, I think sort of the gateway drug for for a lot of folks is uh, MA. So Medicare Advantage Mm -hmm. provides an opportunity for pretty traditional systems to learn to take risk for the population. I think lots of folks have been involved with ACOs and um, some have gotten good at it, some haven't. I'll be a little partisan for a second. There are companies like Castell that we started, which are going to allow providers who are affiliated with us to take risk on our primary care patients. We connect them through contracting. We provide them with a technology stack. We monitor their outcomes and their expenses. And so you can be in a two-person provider practice and you can have the opportunity to get paid to keep people well instead of just cranking out volume when people are sick, uh, just like somebody who's part of our medical group. And so there are a couple companies like that, including Castell or Allidade, that do a nice job with this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I, I, I want to ask a few more questions about the business model realities, because Honest Moment, Intermountain has a very different business model than the traditional health system that I work with. And a lot of our listeners, frankly, are in the business of being hospital operators. And for better or for worse, Risk is not coming to them, frankly, even if they want it. And the control of doctors isn't always available or viable in their market. So what do you see as the role for those organizations, if any, in achieving kind of the goals that you've, you've set out? I think the first goal they have is to work with their boards to set the stage for uh, the necessity for investment in going to value. So that, that's a conversation. When you learn to do, th- do new things, it, it costs money and costs time and it takes attention units. And uh, they need to bring their governance along so that they understand that uh, this is an important strategic investment for the future because everything I see suggests that this change is going to be inexorable. Uh, and the time when you want to make your change is when you can afford to do so. And I I worry, and I think COVID may have brought this to the fore, that there are a number of organizations that are now really distressed, and it's going to be very hard for them to make that pivot. And you start to develop a have and have not capability sort of scenario in our healthcare delivery system. Mm -hmm. And those that know how to take risk are going to do okay. And those that don't are going to get progressively worse. So I think the first step is that, that investment piece. I think you're right, by the way. I, in the conversations that I've had, there's this overwhelming desire for any kind of predictability in the face of a crisis. And what you've pointed out is that having predictable payments in a world where elective surgeries have 
grinded to a halt, you know, a few months ago was really valuable. And I think some are waking up to the idea that a capitated payment, a global payment that provides some comfort is something I might want. But it's difficult to square that with the reality that shaking up your business model now is is also not getting the predictability that you are so urgently seeking. So I think it is inexorable. After you work on the governance, then you actually look for opportunities to begin to exercise thoughtful control over how care is delivered and decrease variability, things that are very important in delivering population health. And so I think bundles are a good way of doing that. You can work with commercial payers on on that. Mm -hmm. You can lobby your state legislature to move to manage Medicaid. Um, That has been extraordinarily successful in a number of states from a public health standpoint and also provides quite a stable population for providers to learn to take good care of people over the long run. And then I believe that we, as as an entire healthcare system, need to put a stake in the ground that this is the right thing to do and push our payer colleagues to embrace this as well. We'll be right back with more radio advisory after this short break. The battle against COVID-19 continues, and we at the advisory board could not be more grateful for the continued commitment of our healthcare heroes on the front lines. In hopes of bringing a bright spot to your day, we've collected over 50 remarkable stories of strength, teamwork, generosity, and victory from your peers. And we've posted them at our website, advisory.com slash a bright spot. We hope that you will visit this page on those days when you just need a boost. Thank you for being our bright spot. You have been pretty vocal about the need for the industry to shift its focus from providing health care to providing health. And if I think about the bets that Intermountain has made, right, Intermountain has focused on being an integrated delivery system with a payer arm and a provider arm so that you can actually provide that accessible, low-cost, high-quality care. And that's very much in line with the early efforts that CMS made at the beginning of the decade about pushing health systems to take on risk. But of course, as you've said, we haven't actually seen many other health systems dive in headfirst. And so we've actually seen CMS shift its focus and say, now we're putting the bets on physician groups. We're putting our our pennies on those independent of a hospital as being the arbiters of risk. So my, my question is, why do you think the status quo health systems fell short? It's too easy to make money doing the wrong thing, right? And same with the commercial payers who didn't want to do risk-based products. Too easy to make money doing the wrong thing. Now, I'm not saying each surgery that was done was wrong or badly done. And certainly I'm a beneficiary of um, highly you know, technical care. I, I'd be dead if it wasn't for a bone marrow transplant unit. So why would most organizations rock their boat when um, they were doing just fine, they everyone knew the model, everyone knew the levers you needed to pull, sort of like the hotel business, you keep the heads in the beds, you turn them over, you keep the cleaning costs down. It's just pretty simple stuff, but it's also not the right thing to do. 
because we know that health outcomes in those sorts of communities are generally not as good as communities where it's health oriented. So credit to the people who came before me who made that pivot in our organization to have an orientation to low cost, high quality, keep people well kind of care. Now, we had to do a lot of hard work early in my tenure to change the structure of the organization to match that orientation. But I could have never done that if, you know, the work hadn't come ahead of me that got people excited about that kind of care. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I should say that the, the hospitals that want to be hospital operators or are kind of forced into the, the model of being hospital operators, there are still things that they can do to help achieve some of the goals you've set out, right? Streamlining their structure, acting like a system, stripping all the unnecessary cost out, and maybe even be, be willing to operate on a lower price are things that those folks can be doing. That's, that's the point though, Ray, as that's, all true. And actually, I think our orientation towards risk actually makes us more effective from a cost per case standpoint on the fee-for-service business that we still do. Yep. And allows us to operate at a much lower cost and then a lower price for folks. I should also say that you pointed out that that you too are, maybe it's not a shift in focus, but are placing some bets on the primary care physician groups in your market and offering them the services that they need to take on risk in the same way that other purchasers, CMS, employers, et cetera, are doing that. That's very much in line with what Intermountain is doing as well. Absolutely, Ray. So anyhow, you know, I gave you my somewhat pithy answer (laughs) that I really think is true. And it's the too easy to make money doing the wrong thing, but that's changing. Yeah. And I think the writing's on the wall and I think COVID spray painted it on the wall. And now we've got to go ahead and I hope that we see changes among some of the legacy institutions. And, and I do think it's easy to think about the business models that we've been talking about as totally separate, that you are either in fever service or you're in a value-based care arrangement. But I actually think that the Venn diagram of tactics that support a system under risk and that support a system under fee-for-service actually has a bunch of productive overlap in the middle of that Venn diagram, right? The no regrets strategies. What in your mind is that productive overlap that organizations can focus on regardless of their business model when it comes to the future of care? I think you said it nicely earlier. It's really close attention to cost. You know, how much does it cost to produce a unit of service to a person? It's really productive use of technology, generally in service to consumerism, but also to um, reduction in cost. It's automation, it's machine learning, it's AI, all of which can address people costs in a very productive way. And um, I think judicious use of scale can actually help Uh, a lot as well. Now, I will say there's a cautionary tale around scale as well. You know, in many markets, M&A activity looks like it not only drives up costs, uh, but it also um, has had no impact on quality. You know, those are the two things that are usually touted in a merger situation. It's probably very seductive for a lot of organizations to ignore their ability to negotiate better rates from the payers than they did before instead of using that scale to drop the prices that they're 
people are being asked to pay. Now, Mark, care delivery and payment transformation aren't the only ways that the business of healthcare, or frankly, business in general, might look different going forward. I'm curious, are there any internal innovations that Intermountain has tested during the pandemic that you're planning on making more permanent going forward? You know, I think some of the ways we communicate, I think we will incorporate. So I've been really impressed by how distance meetings have been. In fact, we had a strategy deployment session recently with our top 50 leaders, and I swear the breakout sessions were better using the teleplatform than they were face-to-face because, you know, there was no place to go and we had people's undivided attention and their face was right up on the screen and (laughs) we got such good feedback and it allowed us to bridge geographies and for us to be able to seamlessly share ideas was just brilliant. And look, um, we went from having, um, you know, under a thousand people working from home to uh, over a quarter of our workforce. So 11, 12,000 people working from home. Hmm. And some people are going to want to come back full time. I don't think many will. I think we are going to incorporate that work from home piece across the organization in very substantial ways for a long time. And it will allow us, in addition to providing people with more time with their families, it will also allow us to lighten our real estate footprint and decrease the cost of care yet again. So that's not going away. I think there's some things we learned about supply chains during the pandemic that will change. We realize that it is a national security issue to have some domestically sourced PPE and uh, domestic sources of drugs as well. So we will, from a supply chain standpoint, make sure we diversify those, those sources so that if something like this happens again, we don't get caught with our pants down. And I will just put a plug in for Civica. Um, you know, the not-for-profit generic drug company that functions like a public utility that we helped to start. They've really pitched in on a number of drugs that have been in short supply because of COVID and have helped be part of the solution for a more robust drug supply network. Your point about working from home is a good one. I'm actually getting a lot of questions about that right now of whether or not folks should let their staff work from home more permanently to your point, as a way to save costs of all that expensive real estate and either translate some of those office buildings into actually being care facilities or, you know, letting the lease go and using it to to save money. So I think a lot of listeners will find it encouraging as they are tinkering with this idea that that you're, you know, moving forward there. So, you know, Ray, um, I, I actually just smile when I hear, should they let their people work from home? Okay. So you're a millennial, right? Yes. Okay. Proudly. <laughs> Proudly. <laughs> so um, if you had an employer that told you you couldn't work from home, what would you do? Oh, you know, as I, I, I don't know that I could, I could continue for all the flexibilities that you, that you said. Luckily, I do work for a place that allows that to happen. Right. You, so you work for a great company that listens to its, its workers and um, they want you to be productive and happy. and. So, you know, you've got flexibility. I think that it is just so unbelievably old school when folks say we're not going to let them work from home. That speaks to control and micromanagement. And I think that the the workforces of the future are going to demand flexibility and autonomy. 
And, you know, they should get paid for results, not for hours put in. And I think it's been really challenging for some of our leaders to loosen the reins, but we actually haven't slowed down at all. If anything, we've accelerated. And maybe the one thing I worry about the most is creating boundaries between your work life and your home life can be very difficult when you're sure. working. And I don't want people to run themselves into the ground. I want them to work hard and be successful and have fun and be stimulated, but I don't want them to burn themselves out. And I think it's going to take real discipline on the part of our caregivers to make sure they're able to balance that. And that actually brings me to a good point about you as a person and as a leader, right? You have kind of gained a reputation in our industry for being someone who pushes transformational change, who pushes for big picture innovation. And by the way, I think that is pretty closely in line with how you took on, you know, your cancer diagnosis and the fact that you are a triathlete and and an Ironman. So I'm, I'm curious for you personally, what switch needs to flip? What's in your to-do list when you want to move something from inspirational idea to practical reality at Intermountain? So that's a, that's a good question, Ray. Uh, there's a doctor leader at Intermountain who I really respect a lot. She asked me during one of our step back reviews with her group, that's part of our Intermountain operating model where we sort of do these skip meetings with different groups and hear what they're up to. And the question she had for me is she said, Mark, you're really direct and challenging with us. And you ask us to do hard things, but for the most part, people are excited by it instead of threatened by it. So what's the, what's the gig? How come that works for you? And I had never really thought about it that way, but I think that is mostly true what she said. And I said, the first piece is the challenge or the directness has to come from a place of respect and love. So if the person understands that you truly care about them and you support them, then it's okay. The second piece is the demand should never be about you. It should always be about how am I going to make something better for somebody else? And then the third piece is there has to be a belief in that person that they can actually do the job. So that three pieces, respect and love, no self-interest. And the third part is I know you can do this. And I'm here to make sure that I give you the tools to do that. And I think it really works. So where does my urgency come from? Look, I'll tell you, in addition to my personal piece, you know, I feel like I've had a reprieve now. Beginning of May, I couldn't walk a half a mile after getting released from the hospital after this CAR-T therapy. I was sick. I was weak. Hmm. You know, this morning I ran for an hour. I'm going to go for a swim this afternoon. And I feel great. And I've got more energy than I know what to do with. And I've got purpose. And, I, and like this health disparity stuff, to now realize concretely that in the system that I'm responsible for, along with 40,000 other people, that depending on the color of your skin, you might have a different maternal outcome that's unconscionable to me. We got to fix this stuff. And, you know, people say, oh, it's so much change. It's so fast. Well, how many people are you going to let die while you're waiting to get your act together and make change? So if we really and truly 
I've gone into this business to make people better, then damn well better make people better. It's not a game. People are trusting us with their lives and their livelihoods. And so we've got to take it really seriously and have a ton of fun with it. We've covered a lot with Mark about what the future could look like. Everything from care delivery models to payment models, even internal operations. And Mark just brought up something that's even more important. And that's the role of health equity and social determinants of health. We don't have enough time to get into it on this episode. So join us for our next one. It's going to be launching this Thursday. We're going to be diving a lot deeper into Mark's belief and Intermountain's role on improving health equity. But in the meantime, remember, we're here to help. I actually hate all that stuff. Um, fortunately, I'm married to an extraordinarily capable person who she was so pumped because she just got some handheld like bandsaw, which looks like it could lop your fingers off in a second.